Welcome to the Talking Recruitment Podcast from the REC. Every week we look at all the latest insights, perspectives and experiences from across our diverse recruitment industry. Hello everyone and welcome along to Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. My name is Neil Carberry, the REC Chief Executive, and it's a pleasure to have you here again for another episode of discussion about the recruitment industry, its outlook and the effects it can have on our economic and social recovery. And that's a big theme here at the REC at the moment as we uh, have just launched on the 18th of February our brand new recruitment and recovery campaign, starting with a report that demonstrates the scale of impact the recruitment industry, both agencies and recruiters working in-house, can have on the UK in terms of productivity, unleashing up to £7.7 billion of productivity every year, but also on important issues like diversity and inclusion, where doing recruitment well not only opens up great opportunities for client growth, but it also opens up a chance to make sure that all boats are lifted as the tide comes back in after this really difficult year. Check out the campaign and the report on our website at rec.uk.com forward slash recruitment recovery. All the materials are there and there's particular materials for REC members to talk to your clients about the difference using professional recruiters makes. That's a really important uh, part of our agenda for the whole of 2021. Linked to that on the 26th of February, you'll see the latest jobs outlook coming out from the REC. That, of course, is our survey of client businesses about their optimism. Big trend there over the last few months has been caginess about the economy, but actually companies being quite positive about their own prospects and their own hiring. And uh, on the 22nd of February, we saw the CIPD survey come out and note that many firms were still looking to hire. That's certainly the anecdote that we received. So look out for that jobs outlook survey on the 26th. Of course, all of that in the run up to the budget on the 3rd of March and the REC will be responding in the usual way to that. So you can uh, keep an eye open for the REC response there and also the next set of priorities for our campaigning as we go into the post budget period. Today on the uh, podcast, we're going to pick up on one of the themes that uh, we've that we discuss in the recruitment and recovery report, and that's about inclusion in our in our economic growth and in the progress that we're looking to make as we build back better from the from, uh, from the pandemic. Delighted to welcome our guest today, who's Stephen Cooper. Stephen's the co-chair of the Social Mobility Commission. Stephen, welcome along to the REC pod. Thank you, Neil. Thank you for having me. Well, why don't we kick off by helping those who maybe haven't come across the Commission as much previously. Tell me a bit about the Commission itself, its goals and the work it does. Yes, the Social Mobility Commission was established through statute some time ago. Its purpose really, well, it has one statutory obligation, which is to produce a State of the Nation report annually on the state or status of social mobility. Um, across the UK, and that is laid in Parliament once a year. The next time that will happen will be sometime late June. And we put in that sort of various stats and data points to say what is happening with social mobility, is it improving or not, as the case may be. And we often put in a number of recommendations to government as to, ha- as to what is going on and what they can do to improve chances for people, particularly those of the most disadvantaged backgrounds. They do not have to act upon those recommendations, but they do need to respond to them. The commission is not new. At the moment, there are 12 commissioners. Uh, I I co-chair that commission. 
We're quite unusual in that one, we all joined together, best part of three years ago now. And also none of us have any prior government or, or, or public body experience. We all um, have our own personal story of socio-economic uh, um, background and, and social mobility. We all care passionately about it. And we are, I, I guess, really an example of diversity and inclusion because we come from all walks of life, we're all different ages, different genders, different backgrounds, different ethnicity, really brought together by the, uh, the passion we share for this subject. And what I like about it is really it's just the, the, the level of diverse viewpoints uh, and backgrounds and experiences, which makes it one very powerful, two fun to be part of. A fascinating piece of work, and of course, we we often think about inclusion and diversity through the 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 lens of the the Equality Act and the strands that it that it protects in in employment law and in other parts of regulation. But uh, one of the things that's increasingly clear to people is that kind of intersectionality that people have different as- aspects and they can be kind of locked out or or have access to opportunity based on that and one of the biggest one is exactly that question of you know what what's the what was your starting point in terms of the the economic position of the family that you, that you came from i mean for many employers you know, this stuff is can feel quite scary we kind of know how to run run things effectively we're learning how to how to how to how to be more aware of diversity in our workplaces and the practices that 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 will help boost it social mobility is is another order again so for employers who are thinking about this as an issue and appreciate that that this is an issue how can they interact with the work of the commission and learn a bit more yeah, I mean, you covered some, some big points there, Neil. You are right in that it is under the Equalities Act, socioeconomic background is not a protected characteristic like gender and race are. That may or may not change going forward. I, I personally suspect it could well change, or at least companies will become increasingly uh, under pressure to report out on the diversity of their workforce, not just gender, where good progress has been made, not just on race, where a lot more needs to be made, but at least it's getting onto the agenda, as well as socioeconomic background. And as you rightly say, there's an intersectionality across all of those lenses. What this really comes down to is firms benefit from having diverse uh, uh, workforces and diverse leadership teams. There's loads of studies to to, uh, prove that. I look at it from two points of view as, as the Commission. One is, it's not fair or right that people from one background have more opportunities than others from another background. The, 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 I guess the fundamental purpose of the Social Mobility Commission is that the circumstances of your birth should not dictate the circumstances or outcomes in your life. That should be down to personal choice. And then I look at it from a, an employer's point of view, and you know, as you know, I'm, I'm a non-executive on the recruitment firm Robert Walters, plus I've, I've run several large businesses in my professional career why would you want to close down access to the widest possible talent pools by putting in artificial barriers? What you really want is diverse workforces that represent the communities in which they are they are based. And the point you really raise is it's very difficult I and mean, it's quite easy to get data at the starting point on your gender. It's quite easy, relatively speaking, to get race or ethnic 
a background much harder to get data on your socioeconomic background, partly because the questions are quite difficult, they can be quite technical, and actually they can create also embarrassment. So if I take it on a personal point of view, if someone said to me, what is the highest professional, highest academic qualification that your parents have? Actually, I don't know. Uh, apart from I don't think either of them do have academic qualifications, or at least not ones that most people in today would, would recognise. So it's much easier if you ask the question in a much way that people can understand, such as when, when you were a teenager, roughly around the age of 14, what was the, the highest paid employment of either of your parents? Uh, and what was that? job they had that gives you a much better feel for your background and then being very clear and transparent as to how that data will be used which is really it's a way of making sure that people from different backgrounds have just as much chance as each other to get a job and to progress in the workplace. I think this is a an area that companies when they step into I think absolutely there are massive advantages to to getting this right. You can go back to what I was saying at the top of the pod about our uh, recruitment and recovery campaign. There's definitely a, a a really wide strand of thinking that both the economic and productivity needs of the of the of UK companies and the the right thing to do drives you towards thinking more about social mobility in uh, in how we plan for the workforce of the future but as you said that that data collection is quite difficult has the commission been looking at tools and 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 things that employers might use to start down that path yes we have so there we have a number of toolkits uh, which people can easily access on on our website they are starting to be broken down by by sector so there's a financial services toolkit for example we are looking at having one for the retail sector. We are considering having one for SMEs because they are, given the size of them on the whole, they have different needs and, and different structures within them. The, the best question really is just, just one simple question. What was the occupation of your main household earner when you were aged around about 14? You know, that doesn't require a tick box or, or anything else. So that's, I guess, a simple question. But what I would also encourage recruiters to, to be working with, again, this is part of the, the toolkits, are put the messaging in your marketing material or the conversation you have around, you know, you're looking for potential rather than, than experience. Often people in socioeconomic, sort of the lower demographics or, or cold spots, and cold spots are where it's very difficult geographically for people to break out of low earning households or, or roles through no fault of their own they could well have good education good good quali- uh, qualifications it's just very difficult to find opportunities there you know advertiser skills not qualifications you know the actual qualification themselves can can become barriers i found that when i was running uh, personal banking at barclays i was looking for people in one of the highest unemployment locations in the uk and yet i couldn't fill roles these were in call centres or operation centres where I found out subsequently we were asking for five GCSEs of a certain grade. I don't need that qualification for someone to answer the phone and uh, help someone who needs some help. I want someone who is prepared to answer the phone with a good attitude and has a hunger to help others. If there's any training required, we can provide that. So really focus on, on sort of the what gets in the way 
and then focus part of the interviewing process, quite often from people from more disadvantaged backgrounds, uh, those who have suffered the most during the, the pandemic and are, I think are central to your, your, your campaign, they often need extra help. They want to see people on the interview panel who represent them, someone who may have gone through the journey they're about to start. Give them some encouragement. Focus on their potential and what they sort of what they would do in certain situations, as opposed to necessarily the experience they can have. But it all starts with the data, and if you can just get that simple question into your process at the beginning, then you can start to build that data set and understand where you're being successful and where you're not, and course correct as a result. That's a really interesting insight, and I think that there's moment behind this work in a way that maybe there hasn't been for a little while. So I was writing uh, yesterday a kind of introductory piece for our new campaign and pointing out there are two or three factors that are making this kind of thinking more and more economically necessary for companies. I think the first one is the fairly obviously travel to work zones, if there's even any travel involved are now much bigger because we're because we're moving to more of a hybrid model which has has the potential to challenge some of those cold spots that we've seen in the past i think the second is fairly clearly when you look at the data the demographics of the british workforce are changing we had a big bulge of people born in the 40s and 50s who are now largely leaving the labor market to be replaced by smaller cohorts of people coming in from who were born in the in the 21st century but i think as important as all of that is a lot of the a lot of the pathways into the labor market that people have had in the past you know large scale big employers have started to move away you know there's an, a truism in the in engineering that says one of the problems britain's had with engineering is whatever you think of British Leyland, British Rail, British Steel and British Coal as employers and as companies, they were pretty good at, between the four of them, delivering the United Kingdom a magnificent supply of trained engineers, which of course, as they those companies broke up, I think the rail industry is still pretty good at that, but as those companies brought up, they, they broke up, the the and those opportunities flowed away a little bit. On average, we do have smaller companies now. And I think that when you play into that, the, the, comp- the sectors where a lot of people who perhaps haven't had the best educational experience find their first employment, their first path in to the labour market. You think retail, you think personal care, you think hospitality, you think leisure and travel. Those are the ones that have been hit most by this moment. So you've got big transition of people into different areas of the economy. Not quite the the skills apparatus that once there was to to deliver. That's a big social challenge. But actually, I think it's also a big economic challenge for for companies. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why we think there's a big role for recruiters in helping companies adapt. But I think also there must be a role here for working with the commission and with the work that you're doing to try and understand how to navigate these problems a bit better. So the, the, while that focus on data at the can seem a bit granular, 
it does, it's the decisions that that data enables informed by the scale of the challenge that that really is going to be the the thing that moves companies to action when you think about that i suppose the other thing companies are looking for is examples so are you seeing companies that have taken a step on this and are making a success of it yes so i think there's a number of points there neil one is there are a number of companies that are are starting to do this for a variety of reasons it's not I guess at one level I'm going to repeat myself, but I think it's worth doing. This is not just a nice to do. In my experience, it's a must do. Uh, And there are loads of examples of companies and individuals who perform exceptionally well within the business. I mean, for example, I think it's the the seven major law firms in the UK. Their top decile of performers, however you define performer, come from a more disadvantaged background. You know, they didn't necessarily have the qualifications to start off with, yet those firms may not be performing to the same level they are performing if they didn't have them. Now, lots of things have happened to help those people along the way. Things like apprenticeships, which which I uh, essentially benefited from in my career, having left school at 16, joined Barclays as a cashier and ended up sort of being a chief executive of the retail part of the business. Lots of people helped me along that way and Barclays you know, did, did a good thing with that as well. So I, I think there's you know, companies benefit from that and the, the diversity of, of their colleague base. And I've already mentioned the example where I was struggling to fill roles. I needed to do the job well because we weren't reaching out to the people who were unemployed and available. And we found some tremendous people there. And by the time I, I left that role three or so years later, there was something like 2,000 apprentices who, who had joined. Real jobs, real wages, real prospects. Um, and, and real careers, and some of those are already moving into to managerial positions. So, I would urge any firm and any recruiter, you know, look beyond traditional talent pools because there's a much wider pool out there. And increasingly, I, I think firms will be obliged to do that, not just by by government, but also their shareholders. ESG is increasingly prominent. So, so I, I do think. That's that's really a good focal point to have. I think it will also be a key part of the leveling up agenda, which increasingly I think will focus on geography. This is not a north-south thing. This is not a red-blue thing. It's right across the country. You mentioned cold spots. They are in the south. They are in the north. They are in the west. They are in the east. They are in central London. And a cold spot is where it's very difficult to get, to get out of low-paid employment, often generation after generation relative to a hotspot where you can have exactly the same background, exactly the same academic uh, qualifications, exactly the same schooling. And yet in a hotspot, you are far more likely to end up in a higher paid role with more prospects. Your, your, your income could be double that of the same person in a cold spot. And there might just be 10 miles between you, which is just it's just not right. And, and to your point that coming out of the pandemic, technology, maybe less travel, that probably has an opportunity to, to to create. And I guess the final point I would come back to on, on your question is an example. And the commission does a lot of work sort of sharing best practice, connecting firms of all sizes. And I'll give two, two examples, if I may. One is a specific company, which is PwC. They've done some tremendous stuff. So they've now got a very high response rate to questions on socioeconomic background, and which is not an easy thing to do. And PwC have increased the response rate from a low of 30% to over 80% just in, in, in two years. And they put a number of 
key measures in place. So first of all, they had a lot of senior leaders championing the, the issue in context around that, I guess, really what they were trying to, to solve for. Their chief people officer really took this on board, put a social mobility network in place, shared stories, uh, personal stories of people within the business who were established in the business and those joining the business. They encouraged completion of the survey. They put it into their, actually, I think they put it into their sort of organization-wide compliance training, which is which is excellent. And they were also providing reasons and information as to how the data would be used, how it would be included, what the purpose was, which was really to help improve the access or the quality of access to opportunities in the firm as part of their wider social mobility activity. And as I say, they got a significant increase in the data, which I think is now leading to getting a more diverse, more inclusive range of applications coming into the organisation, which we know through data turns into better performance through time. They're seeing much better progression and they're seeing much higher retention rates. The, the other example I would give, because it does vary, and some of these are, are subtle things, uh, as opposed to let's just have a server. I've mentioned a number of things that you have to put around it to, to make that happen. I was on a visit, well, we could go and visit places, uh, so a while ago now, in, in Oldham, which is actually one of the, the most disadvantaged local authorities across the UK. And there are no scale in, 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 in Oldham, so there's no sort of very large factory or very large FS firm or whatever else um, who, who may hire a lot of people. It's predominantly SMEs. Uh, what I saw there, which is really good, was the, the local FE colleges connecting with local SMEs to understand what is it, what skills do you need for the roles, the jobs that you, you have now and are likely to have in the next five, 10 years. And as a result of that interaction, the FE colleges designed specific courses to one, attract young people, but also people returning to the workplace to give them the skills, give them the understanding that the SMEs would, would need to create or place those people into jobs that they had. And that was working really successfully. So there are there are some really good examples out there. And that's fascinating. And I think that that whole piece about the importance of place and how we conceptualise place is something that I know is a particular concern to the government but it's also a concern to businesses i sit on the professional and business services council as part of the the government's industrial strategy and you know we are very concerned how we can support smaller businesses in these places to to hire well and to reach into some of these communities your point about it being everywhere though is something i just wanted to emphasize you know, I sit on the low pay commission that sets the minimum wage and quite often we have this slightly stale discussion about regional minimum wages, which there are all sorts of practical reasons not to like. But the, the most obvious pragmatic reason is that the differences within any region or nation of the UK on wages are much, much larger than the differences between any regions of the UK on wages. You know, if you go back to the time of the, the Scottish referendum, there was a lot of comparison of average wages in West London and average wages in the east end of Glasgow. You don't have to go to West London to find that comparison. You just need to look at Milgai and Bearsden on the edge of Glasgow and you can see the difference uh, di- difference that exists even within one city. So I think that that, that point around that there is a lot to achieve, but also some pretty good economic reasons to do it. And I think for us as recruiters, at that nodal point of opportunity, 
both for young people making their first steps, but also people retraining and finding new opportunities on the back of uh, on the back of this last uh, period of disruption. There is you know, a challenge, but also a chance to make a real difference. And, and that's something that I think a lot of people in in our industry see and appreciate particularly in terms of the impact it can have on diversity and inclusion more broadly. And, you know, just recently we've been running a survey of the industry, you know, with ourselves and APSCO, one of the other recruitment industry bodies, just to try and find out where we stand in our own businesses. And and as you say, that comes back to trying to understand the data and then try to make some change around it. There's a lot in what you've said, though, Stephen, for... Uh, recruitment business owners to chew over both in terms of what it means for their business but also what it means for how they support their clients and I think that you know one of the big narratives of our recruitment and recovery report is that you know we, t- we is that we talk about recruiters making great work happen and part of the role of recruiters in the recovery if we get it right is that more strategic advice to uh, clients about how they can access talent and retain it for for longer as well as the process of running recruitment itself so if people are listening to the pod want to find out a bit more about the work uh, that the commission are doing and maybe have a look at some of the scorecards and other work that you've discussed today where would they go to find that if they go onto the the website or the social mobility commission there's a there's a there's, there's a bunch of toolkits on there some great case studies so i'd welcome people to to look at that there's also some some email addresses to get hold of people if uh, you can't find what you want or or need as well as some some case studies i think the other point you mentioned neil which is interesting is sometimes it's quite hard there are some wonderful recruiters um, some of your members who do some fabulous jobs around reaching out to different communities it's not always easy to to reach out to to particularly the most disadvantaged communities but there are there are a range of charities who uh, and other organizations who can can help with that in terms of outreach in many cases there's no better way than sort of find someone who's who's made that transition and, and they can can help with that process but there are a number of organizations out there who, who can do that in my my last role for example, I was chief executive of the, the private bank Conco, which is the oldest bank in the UK and it does a great job, but it's very, in some ways, very traditional in style. And most of these you know, had a great, very good graduate recruitment program. And I changed that slightly to hire non-graduates for at least half the places and take those from either state schools, particularly from, from more disadvantaged backgrounds. And We've got some fabulous people into the organisation. Uh, now, we had to do a bit of work about how to approach these people and, and how to get them. And we worked with a couple of companies to help with that, Multiverse being being one. But they brought a real energy into the business. They brought a real, just a, a younger energy, ethos, viewpoint, perspective, which we, we, we didn't have. So it's just, you know, I, you can tell I'm passionate about it, but it's not just because it's a nice to do. I mean, I saw some people really raise their game and be exposed to business and sort of, I guess, have their horizons opened wide for them. And there are some interesting stats, by the way, that show that if companies, recruiters do work, just, just to work experience, for example, with teenagers 
or even younger than, than Tina, this doesn't have to be lots of work experience. It could just be two or three interactions. That creates a much greater likelihood of those people going into paid employment when they leave school. But really sort of work out how you can reach out to those communities. And as I say, there are some good case studies some good examples of that on uh, the Social Mobility Commission website. Fantastic, Stephen. What a great way to sum up our discussion as well, because I think the strand that's run through this is the economic necessity of doing something about this, as well as the the moral and, and social necessity of it. So thank you so much for giving us your time for today's episode of the pod. Really pleased to have had you along. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us on this edition of Uh, Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then do have a look at the back catalogue. Everything from 2020 is in there and also three fantastic pods that we've already produced this year. A couple focused on IR35, big upcoming tax change in in April and and an episode looking in depth at the effects of the Brexit deal on uh, UK recruitment. So worth checking those out on the back catalogue. And join us again for another episode of Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Join me for another episode soon, and check out our back catalogue at rec.uk.com to catch up on some other fantastic discussions that are really helpful for recruiters. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. So subscribe to REC Podcasts to never miss an episode.